briefly about redemption. We are at one church and we have multiple congregations. We meet in Gateway, which is Queen Creek area, Gilbert, um, here in Tempe, West Mesa, which is our bilingual congregation, Arcadia, as well as in Flagstaff. Um, we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and so we seek to make disciples in response to that truth, and that's just a little bit about who we are. Uh, just a few announcements I have. First, um, of a matter of importance, uh, a couple weeks ago we had a bet to see um, how many people we can get to come to the 7 o'clock service. The bet was between me and another pastor. For those of you that are part of that, just to let you know, um, I won. Um, really excited about that, actually. No, 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 the glory to God. So, <laughs> to him alone. So we do celebrate, for sure, today, the, the victory of Christ and his resurrection, and that's the most important, but we also celebrate the victory of Christ through me over Pastor Jason Raber. So, that was good. The way it works is easy. We tell our 20-somethings, hey, we're going to have donuts for you, and it's like roaches, man. They, they were there, right? They were there. None of them slept. They just showed up from last night and just walked right into service. It was a, it was a good deal. Because we knew that 1045 would be full, and uh, it is. And I know the guys are trying to find chairs and whatnot. Um, I, I plan to go even longer than I normally... No, I'm just joking. Well, <laughs> so, but we're, we're happy you're here. One announcement. Next week, uh, this upcoming Wednesday, we have First Wednesdays. And First Wednesdays is our opportunity as a church to talk about theology and culture. How we can look through the lens of the gospel and look at things in culture. Um, and this Wednesday, particularly, we're going to have an art gallery. And so in the room that you're all sitting in, we're going to have an opportunity to look at paintings, to look at drawings, uh, to hear poetry and songs and spoken word um, from different men and women in our congregation and throughout the city to join in that moment. And so we want to invite all of you to come with us. Um, it will be at 6.30 p.m. in this room to 8 p.m. There'll be food here as well as child care. So again, first Wednesday is this Wednesday. Love to see you all. Without further ado, if you guys have your Bible, won't you meet me in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep your hands raised really high, um, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Um, If you don't own a Bible, keep the one that we hand out to you so that you can have God's Word, and you can read it, and you write on it, and understand who Christ is. Um, If you have the Bible that we're handing out to you guys, you're going to be on page 637, 637, Philippians chapter 3. Let me just kind of let you know where we're going. Um, This is today is Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. On the church calendar, this marks as a significant day for us. Um, it is significant in the fact that it's not like any other Sunday. So, so often you'll hear pastors say, this Sunday is just like any other Sunday. No. It, it, it's, a, it's a day that marks the greatest event ever, is that God died on Good Friday, and he was raised from the dead, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And it brings us great joy and delight and celebration. What we know about Easter is that Easter is also known, at least in America, as the most religious day. Like even people who normally don't come to a church service, they show up and it's like, I got to show up today. Um, You're going to give me free food. Sure, I'll show up. I'll show up to someone's church service because it's a religious day. But let let me tell you this, where we're going today, is Easter is not about religion. It's about relationship. Here's what I mean by that. When I say the word religion, I say it pejoratively, meaning with contempt. Um, religion, meaning anything that we have to do or we can do with our own ability that would make God love us, that's not what Easter is about. Easter is not about what we can do, what we need to do, what we should do in order for a holy God to look at us and say, now I will accept you. Now I will set my affection and my love upon you. It's not about religion, but it's about relationship, about how God himself put on flesh, entered into our world, 
in order that, he may be, that we may be one with him through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And so what we're going to look at is, is realizing that religion gets in the way of relationship, but once we got relationship with God, it shatters religion. And so in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, who inked these words, he tells his story of religion and how religion he counted as loss, but he counted as a significant gain to know the relationship that he would have with God. And so four things that he, he gives us for about relationships is to know Christ, um, to gain Christ, to be found in him, and to know the power of his resurrection. To know Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, and to know the power of his resurrection. So we're going to look at that, but before we do, would you all bow your heads with me and let's ask God by his spirit um, to illuminate his word. God in heaven, we thank you for this great moment in which we can gather. And we can hear your word, and we can hear it taught, and Lord, we ask that you would take these words that come out of my mouth, and you would use them for every individual and every person, every woman, every man, every child in this room, that you'd speak to them. God, as you open up the scripture, and we would see that all of us at some degree, whether we believe in you yet or not, Lord, there is some degree of religion in us. We feel like we need to earn something in order to receive love. God, help us to see that relationships shatters religion. And then, Father, over the next few moments, leading up to the communion table, and as we would rejoice, that we would understand and know Christ relationally. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the things that we do, just as people, all right, is that we try to impress people. We try to impress the people around us. Uh, we try to impress people that we like. And this happens even as young kids. It happens as toddlers. It happens as you grow up uh, to a point that you get to a certain age, wherever it be for you, that you begin to want to impress the opposite sex, right? Yeah. For me, that was fourth grade, right? <laughs> well beyond you guys. I knew. Wham, right? So there was a particular girl. I'm going to say her. Let's say her name is Krista because that, that was her name. And... Um, <laughs> That was in my fourth grade class, and I liked her, and, and, um, and we, were new to the, we both were new to this school, and, and I thought, you know, hey, you know, maybe one day she could be my wife. Yeah, I know I'm eight, but maybe, right? <laughs> and so I wanted to impress her, and she told me she was an Oakland A's fan, and I've always been a Dodgers fan. I was like, I'm an Oakland A's fan now, Ricky Henderson, all the way, right? And so I got an Oakland A's hat. Did not work. Fourth grade, did not work. Fifth grade came along. She was in my class again, and she was really into music, and she liked Whitney Houston, Boys the Men. That was that era right there, right? I'm bended knee. I was trying to be on bended knee, like, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm right here, right? Whatever you want to, right? And so, didn't take. So, in sixth grade for us in, in SoCal, we had an opportunity to, uh, junior high started for sixth grade, and that means you had multiple classes. And so, I believe in God's providence at that moment, um, she was in three out of my six classes. So, I thought, hey, there's a 50% chance this year. Like, this could be the year, Right? My sister, my older sister, used to always call me, you smelly little boy, you smelly little boy. So I'm thinking, maybe I smell, right? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe I need to smell good. And so one day I thought, you know what, I'm going to take a shower. Now, <laughs> I, I took showers every day. But this particular time, I, I, was, I wanted to put on some cologne. I'm like, she'll notice me. But I didn't have any cologne. But I had an older sister. <laughs> and she had perfume. And I was like, who can tell the difference, right? <laughs> they both smell good. So I just took the bottle, right? Showed up to school, got around our table in that first period. And she goes, oh my gosh, who has that terrible smell of perfume? And I'm like, I know. Do you smell it? <laughs> right? And, like, I, I tell that story for two reasons. One, to let you know, I haven't always been this smooth. <sighs> two, two, 
it, it, it's kind of a pitiful story, right? Like me kind of going through all of these motions to try to get this girl to, to like me, to notice me. And, and what's weird about that is we do that with God. That we try to do certain things, certain religious things. Maybe we buy a new Bible. Maybe this time we'll, we won't write our names in it. We'll get it printed on it. Uh, um, this, this time we're going to read it a little bit more. And, and, and we're going to do certain things in order that God would look at us. And then he would go, oh, yeah, finally you're in. And all of us find our way, our way there. It's, it's just religion, and again, in the pejorative sense, in the negative sense. That we are trying to do something in order for a holy God to look at us and go, yes, I accept you. And honestly, from God's view, it's pitiful. It's kind of like looking at me putting on perfume as a boy, right? It's like, come on, really? Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he writes Philippians 3, he's trying to explain something to us. He's saying, check this out. There's, there's no religious ladder that you need to climb to get to God because what usually happens is when you climb this particular ladder, whatever it may be, if you get to the top, you'll realize it's tilted against the wrong building. And no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, it is not about religion. It's about relationship. It's not about you trying to earn your way to God. It's about God sending his son Jesus that he may be with you. And he unpacks this for us in these, these verses from chapter, excuse me, verses 1 all the way to verse 11. And he gives us what relationship is. But before that, he um, uses the language. Um, he brings his economics into his, his, his message here in the sense that he goes, there's a loss column and there's a gain column. And the first, the first few verses, he tells us about what he thought he was gaining by being a very spiritual, religious person. Verse 2, it says this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's what he's saying. Listen, um, it used to be it was in the Jewish religion, if you were circumcised, it was a big deal because it means that you were set aside, you were set apart. But Paul goes, check this out. Listen, it's not about us putting confidence in the flesh because we put no confidence in the flesh. He's not saying that we shouldn't be confident people, that you shouldn't be a confident woman or a confident man or child. He's just saying when it comes to the vertical relationship with knowing God, he goes, you don't have the ability. He goes, we put no confidence there. And then he goes on to say, if there's anybody who could have earned God, he goes, it would have been me. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else, he ha- and if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under, law, under the law, blameless. You see, in Paul's day, to be super religious meant to be a good Hebrew man or a good Hebrew woman. He goes, there's none better than me. I, too, was circumcised on the eighth day. I, too, am Hebrew, and not, I'm a Hebrew of all Hebrews. Meaning, out of the 12 tribes, that best tribe was the tribe of Benjamin. He goes, I'm from that tribe. He goes, as to the law, like the law of God, I'm a Pharisee. Meaning, the Pharisees were the people who who did the best. They knew everything. They did everything God said and more. He goes, no one was better at being good than me. He goes, as to, to being zeal, I persecuted the church, meaning I hated Christians. He's saying, there was no one better than me. Like, and, and our day, he goes, no one can out-church me. Like, I preached sermons, handed out communion. I, I, I prayed for people. I saved people. I did children's ministry all at the same time. He's like, no, no, no one. He's like, no one. Now, we may say, well, we're not really striving to be good Hebrew people. Most of us aren't. 
But we have our own religions. We have our own ladders in which we climb in order to have approval or acceptance before God and the people around us. Maybe it may be education. Um, maybe it's the way, the way you parent your kids and raising good kids. Or maybe it's your beauty. I, whatever it may be. Um, they're good things, but it can't be things that we make into the main thing. Because when it comes to um, just comparing against God, like we, we don't add up. Like we can't earn our way there. I mean, God's always going to be best. I mean, you, you think about it. Um, you may say, yeah, well, you know, I'm pretty good at business. I own a couple companies. And God's like, I own the world. <laughs> you may say, hey, I'm raising good kids. Jesus, right? <laughs> Only took me once, right? It's like you just, you, you, can't, you can't do it. Paul, Paul, Paul's saying all these things. That he's not saying that they don't matter, right? And in verse 7, he continues. He says, but whatever I've gained... Um, I, every, whatever gain I had, I've counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. This is what I mean when I said he brings the, the language of economics into his, his spiritual language here. He goes, there's a loss column here. He goes, I count those things as loss. He, he's not saying that your vocation, your hobbies, your desires, what you do for recreation, he's not saying those things are meaningless. He says, but when it comes to the vertical relationship with God, it, it's not the same. It's, on a, it, it, it's considered a loss. He's not saying that there's no social, educational, or cultural um, understanding or weight to those things. Those things matter, but it does nothing to earn your way to God. And so he gives us these four things. And the first thing is to know Christ, meaning religion is about what you have to do. And if God sees you and sees that you're doing well, he'll say, finally, come home. Relationship is God looking at you, knowing that you could never come home on your own, and he sends his son to find you. Now, Paul is saying, That was religion, what we can do. But what's greater than that, what shatters religion, is relationship. And the first thing he says is, it's to know Christ. Read with me in verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, that the language there, surpassing worth, means it's incomparable, meaning you cannot compare who, I, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on my behalf to anything else I've ever done. And, and many of us in this room who have placed our faith in Christ Jesus, we get that. Maybe in weak moments, we, we fall to things that are, that are idols or false gods in which we try to find life from, but they really don't, they don't bring what they promise. But, but when we're, we're honest, we go, no, no, no Jesus is best. Not just better, he's best. Like, he's in his own category. And Paul says, this is about knowing, this is knowing Christ. He goes, if you want a relationship, you have to know him. And what I love about the language here, knowing, unlike most areas in the Bible, uh, the Greek language here is not communicating a verb, but a noun. Meaning when Paul says, I want to know Christ, he's not saying just only intellectually, though you do need some intellect. He's talking way more experientially. He's talking about a person Meaning it is to know Jesus, it's to have relationship with Jesus, to have the understanding of what it means to be one with him, a relationship. And many of us have been in relationships and, and good ones, and we know what it's like to know somebody. No one's in a relationship with someone that they don't know, unless you play football for Notre Dame. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to do that too. I didn't do it earlier, God's going to forgive me. You know what it's like to be in a relationship. <laughs> you know what it's like. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> to be in a relationship. 
So, because here's what's happening. What, what happens is you have plenty of people who go, I know Jesus. I know facts about Jesus. I can say things about the Bible about Jesus. But do you have a relationship with him? The writer of James says this, the demons know Jesus and they shudder. There's a difference between just knowing things about him than actually knowing him and being in a relationship with him. And, and re- religion will jack that relationship up, meaning what religion does is it takes beautiful truths of the gospel and breaks it down into just a proposition, and it takes the relational aspects out of it. Here's what I mean. One of the most beautiful scriptures in all, all of the Bible is John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? And whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's beautiful. But we suck the relationship out of that, and we make it to a proposition and go, okay, here we go. So you, there's God. He loves us. He gives Jesus. And if we believe in Jesus, give him our sins, and we'll go to heaven. And that's what that's been reduced to. So believe in God, give him your sin, and then you go to heaven. And you're going to sing there forever. And we kind of go, yeah, sure, we'll take it, because we, we want to get out of here. We want to escape hell. We want to escape the suffering in this world. And so, yeah, we'll just go to heaven. But there's no relationship in that. I think we can learn a lot from our kids because if we went now into the children's ministry and said that, hey, 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 children, believe in God, trust in Jesus, and then you'll go to heaven and you're going to sing forever. Well, one of those, at least one of those kids, one of those six-year-olds are going to go, no, 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 wait a minute. That's, that sounds terrible. Like we're just going to sing again and again and again? Oh, man, that sucks, right? <laughs> but we're too religious to really admit that. But what's happening there is because most of us are okay with going to heaven even if Jesus is not going to be there. When, when, when it comes to John 3, 16, that's a relational verse, that God so loved this world that he gave Jesus, that we would have life, meaning we would become more and more and increasingly grow in who we are in the image of God. And those who would reject, it said that they would perish, meaning the more and more and the further away they get from relationship with God, the further you get away from relationship with God, you're not being the Imago Dei or who you're created to be after God's image. It's very relational. And so Paul says, I want to know him. And in good relationships, you know people. And someone in the room will, will naturally say, what about obedience? It's, it's got to be something obedience, right? Um, yes. But obedience does not come before God loves you. Obedience flows out of a relationship with understanding God's love. I Meaning you do it out of gratitude. Uh, the paint this picture is we know what health, unhealthy relationships look like. Um, usually what you have is it's taught mainly in our, our public schools, especially at ASU. If you take any classes on relationships, it's taught that the person who loves the least um, has the most control. And what happens in that relationship is it's unhealthy. A person uses the other person for whatever. That, this person has something that I want, and if I love the least, I can get that. And so it's like, hey, I, I don't have a car. You have a car. I love you, right? I don't have any money. You have money. I love you, boo, Right? So, I, can, so I, I just get your money. And you, you, we, we use that person. And we, we, we laugh at that, but that's how we treat God. When we unpack the beautiful truth of God's grace, that he loves us supremely um, in the work of his son Jesus, and he's forgiven us, past, present, and future, we, 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 we get that, and we understand grace. And what happens is those of us who are really not in relationship with God or really testing the waters of the relationship, um, we, we try to see what we can get out of it, or what we can, um, how we can use God. Uh, the way that looks like is this. You go, okay, so God's going to forgive me, past, present, and future, right? So even if I, yeah, even if I do this, right, he's going to forgive me? Uh-uh. All right. Well, what happens is whenever our emotions, which so often dictate what we do, our feelings, even though they're inconsistent and incompatible 
with the gospel living and what it looks like to flow out of a relationship with Jesus, we find ourselves engaging in unwise and sinful activities. And, and, and what we say is we justify it by saying, I feel this way. And you know what? God's going to forgive me. His grace is going to forgive me. Literally. I've known men in our own church that have walked away from their wives and saying, do you have any biblical? No, God will forgive me. Are you kidding me? That's unhealthy. And all of us, to some degree, we do it. We presume upon his grace. The other side of the coin of an unhealthy relationship is the person who loves the most and so desperately desires for their partner, their husband, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whoever it may be, to love them back. And they're constantly doing things. And those of us on the peripheral, we look and go, ah, it looks pathetic. What do you stop doing that? But they're doing everything they can to get this person to love them. And some of us view God like that. Like God's some angry God up there just going, no, no, you did it again. No, no, get better. No, no, try again. Nope, never, nope, 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 nope. That he doesn't desire to be in relationship with us. And so we just do things in order to gain. Both of them in itself is doing certain things to gain something. But when Paul talks about knowing Christ in relationship, it's what a healthy relationship looks like. I love my wife and my wife loves me. When I do things for my wife, I don't do them in order to gain her love. I already have her love. So if I take a grocery list and I go to the grocery store for her and I take the boys and I take the oldest one and the youngest one, the youngest one still in diapers, and I, and I change diapers and I come back to her, I don't come back with the list and go, hey, sweetheart, um, so went to the store today, um, watched Eli, watched Noah, changed Eli three times, one of them really bad. And then, do you love me now? Like, that would be pathetic. So why do we treat God that way? See, God, God desires the relationship with us. That, that's the beauty of the gospel. He initiates it. He's saying, no, 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 no. I love the most, and yet I'm willing to give the most in order to get you. And it's a supreme love in which God gives us, and only God gives us. And Paul says, this is what he's talking about. It, it, this relationship will shatter religion, is that God himself lavishes his love upon us in the work of his son, Jesus. And, and, and Paul continues here of saying, that's a gain. That's a relational game. He continues in verse, in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So to know Christ relationally, but also to gain Christ. Which I love Paul's play on words here because so far we've been saying there's nothing you can do to earn yourself to God. And it's true. There's nothing you can do to earn God's love. But why does Paul use the word gain? Because this word right here, it communicates of a runner who is running to receive a prize because he or she has won the race. But it's just the great paradox of the gospel. The way up is the way down. In order to gain your life, you have to lose your life. What Paul is communicating here, in order to gain Christ, you have to admit that you can't. Like In order to receive or to win Christ, you have to first admit that you don't have anything in your ability to do so. Like, your work can't do it, your relationships can't do it, your friends can't do it, your education can't do it. And once you admit that, then you just receive it as a gift. It's just grace. You just receive them like God gives you his son. And, and this is hard for us because I've said it before. We are naturally allergic to grace. Like, we, we want to earn something. We want, God, can we have something to do? Like, can't we, like, pay you back at some level? Can't we, like, tip you or, like, something, right? Like, that's what we naturally want to do. Um, what we do to communicate this, there is um, an agreement, a mutual agreement that we have with my in-laws or my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law that every Christmas we are going to spend like 
a little bit of money on each other for gifts. Like, that's what we're supposed to do, like a dollar, right? And that's it. They live in California. We live here. It's like, let's just save the money. We get it. You love us. We love you. No big deal. Well, then, you know, you know what happens after that. Like, have you ever, yourself, have you ever um, received, like, an extravagant gift before? No? <laughs> Neither have I. <laughs> um, you, you, know, you know when someone, like, completely one-ups you? And so well, um, Christmas rolls around, and, the, and you, you, you get your gifts, and you're like, really? A, a, a car? Like, you know I mean, like, are you serious? Is, this is what you're giving me? Like, they gave us a gift card with tons of money on it, and we already had sent off our gift. We couldn't get it back. We gave them a calendar, right? It was like with, with our family picture on it, like January, us. February, us. <laughs> November, us, right? Just in case you want to know what we look like. <laughs> like you know, it's like that, that, and it's like, we can't, this is, and you call them up, you go, oh, man, why did you do that? You didn't have to do that. We're, is there a way we can pay you back? And, and, you know, instead of just receiving it and realizing they have the means to do something for us that we don't have to do for them, we should probably say, hey, you know, I'm hoping to do this every year, actually, <laughs> you know, like, like we, we don't receive it. And again, in this same picture, we can learn a lot from our young kids. No, there is no four-year-old who has a problem with accepting extravagant gifts? Can you imagine that, dude, on, on, Christmas, on Christmas Day? Mom, mom, are you serious? No, no. No. Like, ne- never. In fact, they have a hard time accepting the calendars. Like, oh, what's this? We can learn something from them. When God gives us his son, we just receive it. We can't pay God back. We don't need to pay God back. We don't need to tip him. We, don't, we just receive it. God has the means to do for us what we could never do for him, and he desires because he is a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a generous God, and so he gives us the best thing he can give us, and that's himself, and we just receive it, and we thank God for it, and we, we, we receive this, this relationship with God through his son, Jesus And so we know him relationally, and then we receive him as a gift. And then Paul, um, immediately in verse 9, says, not only do we know him, not only do we gain Christ, but we also want to be found in him. Verse 9, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what Paul is saying. I want to be found in Jesus. Like, I don't want to be found in my own righteousness. No righteousness from the law. And, and when you hear the law, the law was God's uh, moral, perfect, holy law of which people were supposed to live out of. But one of the purposes of the law was to show people that they never could add up. And pa- Paul's saying, I don't want to be found in my own righteousness because I really don't have any. I want to be found in Jesus. Now, but here's the problem with us. Every single one of us, we're self-righteous. We're self-righteous people. You may not go around thinking you are, but you are. All you do is ask the people around you, and it looks different for different people. There's like the churchy way of being self-righteous. You know, that's usually the people who show up all the time. They're always here. They've been to VBS 17 years. They taught it. They know everything. They know all of the words and the songs, and you're looking at them like, their eyes are closed. How could they know the words, right? They know everything, right? They don't drink. They don't dance. Even when they take communion, they never get wine, only juice, like, it, you know, they're just, and, and there's a sense where, in some ways, there's a leg up. There's, I'm, I'm morally upright. That's more of the churchy way. Now, some of you are here go, I don't believe in God, so that's not me. Oh, you showed up today, so that means you're not exempt. I have something for you, too. There, there, 
there, there is a sense of, in some ways, not all the times, but there's this environmentally friendly moral. If I can care for the world uh, better than you, then I, I mean, you're just, there are people like you, like people like me or people like other people. They, they don't get it when it comes to the world. First person I ever met that was really, really keen on caring about the environment was my friend growing up. A bunch of us were in the car and we're driving in her car and I had a, a McDonald's cup and I got done with it and I chucked it out of the window into this field. Man, she flipped that car. Yeah, look at you guys. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it comes out. <laughs> she flipped the car around. She started using language that I would never use here because I'm a pastor. And then she, she, flipped, she flips the car around. If you don't get out of the car and get that cup, I'm like, are you serious? Come on. I've thrown plenty of cups there before, right? I get out, get the cup, no big deal. Um, this particular person is still to this day. That's what she cares about the most. And when she will say, it's people like you that ruin our world. If you could just see this. And um, she went to USC, and I came to ASU, and, 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 and not really all I cared about at the time was football. She called me a few years ago and said, hey, I'm really proud of ASU. I'm like, did we, did we, did we beat SC? What's up? You know? And because she went to SC and whatever, her loss. And um, she goes, your school of global sustainability. And I'm like, I got to go. <laughs> right? <laughs> But there's a self-righteousness there. Now, I do need to say this for you environmentally friendly people. I do believe the gospel has implications for us caring about the world. I no longer throw cups out of the window. Um, I own a hybrid. So, but I only use it to drive to, you know, buy my cloth diapers. So just, just so that we're, we're, we're there. We're there on that. There, there, there is a, there's a self-righteousness in all of us. And Paul is going, I don't want to be found in that. Like, I don't want to be found in myself righteous. The reason why we, we are is because we all have a front that we put on before people around us, before God, and honestly, even before ourselves. Because we know deep down, we, if people really knew who we were, if they knew what we did, if they knew the thoughts that we had, they wouldn't like us. They wouldn't accept us. Even deeper than that, if we, we don't even really like who we are, and that's why we put on fronts. We're like a house, one of those model homes that you see it from the outside and you walk in and you go, man, nothing's really in here. Like, what, what, what's supposed to be here? And all of us are there. If we, we can just be honest, there's a little bitty insecurity, a little bit of insecurity in all of us. And what Paul is saying here is saying, I don't want to be found there. See, we as people, we want to be noticed. We don't want to be found. See, when you're noticed, you've done something. And people, wow, that was pretty good. I've noticed this about you. This is really good. I've noticed this. But to be found is saying that you're completely exposed. And this goes all the way back to even the beginning of the story in Genesis. When God created Adam and Eve, and they were, they were right before God, and they were, they were bare before God and each other. They were naked before their creator and before one another. They were fully exposed, nothing to hide. But as soon as they sinned, what did they do? They made fig leaves for themselves. And ever since then, we've been making metaphorical, spiritual, biblical, vocational, relational fig leaves that we cover ourselves with what we can do, how we can communicate, um, maybe the degrees that we have, whatever it may be, and we cover ourselves because we don't even know who we are. And Paul's saying, I don't want to be found like that. You see, we, we put on fronts for people. We put on our best, especially dependent on how, how um, prestigious the person is. Like for me, I've, I've always wanted to meet the president. Like whenever I ever see people get the chance to meet the president, I've always wanted to meet the president. And any president, it doesn't matter, it could be Obama, it could be Bush, it could be Clinton, Lincoln, right? What's up, Link? Right? It could be, be perfect. And, and I'm like, what would that be like to meet the president? Last night I was literally telling my wife this and it hit me, bah, my wife's met the president. 
Um, her first college she went to before she went to ASU, they won the national championship and she got to meet the president. I'm like, what'd you wear? Sweats, Nikes, what? She goes, no, it's a president. Like, you, you, you wear your, your best digs, you're going to meet the president. And I think sometimes we think that's what God is looking for because he's definitely more prestigious than the president. But God's going, I don't care. I don't care what you wear. Just come as you are. I, and, and God is saying, I know what you've done. Like, I actually know you. I know your thoughts before you say them. I know your, excuse me, before you think them, your words before you say them. I know you. I know everything about you. I know what you've done, what you will do, what you will do. And he's saying, I want to cover you. Meaning God is attracted to righteousness, but the Bible says that you and I, we have none. So he goes relationally, not just for us to know him and to gain him, but to be found in him. Paul says, I don't want to be found in my own righteousness. And Christ comes and he, and he gives us the greatest exchange ever the greatest transaction ever, and that Jesus comes to take our doubts, our insecurities, our unbelief, our sin, and to, to, to suffer the punishment and penalty for that. But then he gives us his beauty, his obedience, his holiness, his purity, and he closes with that. So now, get this, when God the Father looks at us, at those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he sees his son Jesus. Meaning God does accept us as we are. And what the gospel of grace does, it begins to make us more and more like Jesus. But this is a relationship in which God does. He covers us. If you can fathom this, God loves you in Christ just as much as he loves Jesus. Just imagine what your life would look like if you believe that. Not just cognitively can say that. If you knew that you were as loved as God's son and he loves Jesus a lot. And he doesn't love you any less than that. That's what Paul is saying. I want to know him. Um, I, I, I want to, to gain him. I want to be found in him. And I know that I can be completely exposed. Uh, I, I can be completely myself because he's redeeming me in the work and through the work of Christ Jesus. And the last thing that Paul gives us here is to know the power of the resurrection. Verse 10, he says this, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's what Paul is saying. If you can know Christ, if you know Christ and you've gained Christ and you're found in him, but there's no resurrection, meaningless. Like meaningless. This is why this Sunday is just not an ordinary Sunday. This is why it's marked on the church calendar and Christians for centuries have worshipped God even more so on this day. Because without the resurrection, if Jesus would have just only gone to the cross and died, he'd have been another good person who loved God, who died. You can't have a relationship with dead people. You can only have a relationship with people who are living. And because God did the greatest act in history and he raised Jesus from the dead, but the same power of the Holy Spirit, now we have a relationship with Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead It's the same power that will raise us from the dead. The same power that gives us an opportunity to know Christ, to be found in Christ, and to gain Christ. Paul gets this. Paul knows the very beginning of a relationship with Jesus is not by anything we can do, by what he has done in the work and through the work of his son Jesus. And the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes to see that. So, for those of you in this room who've never believed and trusted in Christ, who's never understood a relationship, maybe for years you thought, yeah, 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 this is just religion. I had a guy last, last service, probably 40 years old, said, hey, I haven't been to church since I was 12. And as soon as you talked about the Dodgers and the Oakland A's, you had me hooked. 
And I was like, Jesus, anywhere, (laughs) right? And he said, I never knew about the relationship. Maybe you've heard of having a personal relationship with God. This, This is not just a personal relationship. This is God himself who wants to know his creation. It's far more than just individual satisfaction. Um, you've never, if you've never trusted in him, and you say, well, I want to, I do want to believe in Jesus, let, let me encourage you with this. There's no way that you would want to believe in Jesus. What we know from the Bible, um, as wicked as the condition is of the human heart, there's no way that you would want to follow Jesus if the resurrection and the power of the resurrection wasn't already at work in your life. So trust it. If God has planted a seed of the gospel of of Jesus Christ in you, walk with it, run with it, follow him. He's given you something that nothing else can give you, and follow Jesus. You you know what it's like sometimes when people share the gospel? You hear this good story of God entering into this world, and he's going to rescue all things and make things right. It's kind of here in the gospel of Jesus dying for your sins, right? If you've ever been to the mall or you've ever been window shopping, you know you, you don't have any money, right? You guys know me. You know where I'm at. Like you look at things and you go, man, I would want that. I ain't got enough money for that. Man, I'd, like, I'd even want the body of the mannequin that those clothes are on, right? I'm never going to get that either, right? Like you, you look at those things, that, that paints a good picture, but I have no means for that. What Paul is saying is the power of the resurrection, God says, enter in. Like get in on this. And there's more to come. That in the relationship of Jesus, it's not just the power of the resurrection that begins a relationship, though that's where many of you should start today. But for the rest of us who say and, tr- and, and, and profess that we trust in Jesus, it's also the power to sustain that relationship. That meaning the relationship with Jesus is something that we grow deeper and deeper in as the, as the years go by and as time goes by. It, it, it's kind of like when I see people who are older. I love watching older people who have been in their marriage for years, you, you, ever, you ever 40, 50 years, the way they walk with each other, albeit very slow, the way they look at each other, when they hug each other, the way they kiss each other, they laugh more. There's a deepening in that relationship. But the power of the resurrection gives us is not only that God has begun a relationship with us, but God is the one who's also going to sustain it. That means there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. This relationship will always shatter religion. So know him, gain him by faith, be found in him and his righteousness, and know the power of the resurrection, and we trust in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are a good God, and you give good gifts. And Lord, we ask that by grace that we would be able to receive it. God, that you would give us an understanding of faith to be placed directly on the object of our faith, and that is your son, Jesus. Father, we pray this day as we sit the rest of this evening and we eat with friends and family, as we hang out with people, Lord, that we would be reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we remind it, Lord, that every single thing that we see in this material world, as good as it could be, you're best. And that you care about those things and that you died on the cross, Lord, not just to save us to yourself, but also to redeem creation. And so everything that we eat and everything that we drink and everything that we make and every relationship that we delight in, Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come, that the, the power of the resurrection that brings full redemption and restoration 
would be enacted even in this life. Father, we pray um, that you would increase our desires and our affections for your son, Jesus, that we would live a resurrected life. And I ask that those who are here that have never placed our faith in Jesus, God, that you would do a number in their their hearts. We can't do it and we can't create it, but that's that's the business that you're in. And so, God, we thank you for that. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.